Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today is the 156th day of Occupy Wall Street. And to you wonderful souls who either purchased a copy of one of my books or made a direct donation to the salon, I sincerely appreciate your support. Hopefully you have already received a little thank you note from me. And right now I would like to read part of a note that I received from one of this week's donors. Hello from Arkansas. I made a first-time and modest donation, and I wanted to say thank you from Little Rock, Arkansas. I am a bit isolated here, although perhaps there are other salon listeners in the area. I'm keeping my eyes open. I also appreciate the Occupy updates you have been posting. I am resolving to go by the Occupy Little Rock site and check things out. I admit I have not been up on this, but your posts have led me to look more into it. I have listened to lots of McKenna talks through the salon slash archives and read his book, Food of the Gods, recently. I particularly enjoyed the last two podcasts and hope one day to perhaps meet you and other saloners in person. For now, I feel connected through the podcast. Thanks again for all of your work. Stephen M. Now, the reason I wanted to read that message is because, as you'll hear in just a moment, in my presentation at the recent workshop, I propose that if you want and can get four or more people together, I'll Skype into a mini salon of sorts. And you'll hear more about it in a bit, but my thought is that uh, this may be a way for people who still haven't found any of the others in their area to have a reason to at least bring up the subject of the psychedelic community to sort of test the waters, so to speak. And I'll pick up on this train of thought after we first hear today's program which is the next part of the Terrence McKenna Beyond 2012 workshop that uh, Bruce Damer and I gave last month. As you remember, uh, last week we heard Bruce's first presentation of the day, and in the podcast before that we heard my opening presentation at the workshop. Right now we're going to pick up uh, after lunch and after the preview screening of Ken Adams' new film about Terrence McKenna, which is where I came back for my second presentation. And for my friends down under, when you hear me say something to the effect that Captain James Cook discovered Australia, I humbly apologize because I know that the continent was already well populated with us humans when he arrived. He uh, just happened to be the first European whose presence in those waters has been recorded. And I knew as I was saying it that Cook couldn't have discovered Australia any more than Columbus discovered the Americas. But uh, at the time, it seemed like too long a diversion to explain my inexact statement. And now that I've done so, my guess is that you'll agree that this explanation is overly long and actually unnecessary for the most part. So, so enough of me. Uh, let's get on with the program, which, of course, is even more of me. Boy, after that film, it's kind of hard. I, I didn't realize I was going to put myself in a position to follow Ken's film. <laughs> uh, there's one other uh, movie I'll tell you about this year that uh, you probably will never see, but uh, there's a docu documentary called The Stark Project, and unless they win something at Sundance, it probably won't have a theater run, but uh, most people aren't aware of this, that when MDMA, or at the time street name Ecstasy, uh, hit the mainstream, uh, Ground Zero, of all places, was Dallas, Texas, at a place called the Stark Club, S-T-A-R-C-K. And the 
the Stark Project uh, is what the documentary about, and uh, I don't know if I will make it in the film. They spend enough money interviewing me but to hear about my nefarious ways, and if you want to hear about the dark side of my background, it'll be in there. Uh, that's all I'll say about that. Uh, but as far as the, the uh, movie that Ken just, just uh, showed us, I, I've seen it now, well, that's my third time, and I'm, I'm really starting to appreciate what he did as far as, uh, like in the beginning, you know, the books and papers, and I was like the trip coming on, and next time you see it, you're going to see a, a lot of uh, things uh, like that, I think, uh, that will strike your fancy you hadn't noticed before. But here's what uh, I've been thinking about is, uh, you know, Terrence McKenna was part of uh, what he called the psychedelic resurgence, where uh, psychedelics, you know, uh, essentially they, they uh, came into uh, somewhat intellectual consciousness through Aldous Huxley. Uh, and then Timothy Leary, of course, was able to yank it away from the scientists and get it out onto the street, along with a lot of help in the 60s. And then, of course, all the war and drugs, everything shut it down, and it, it really got quiet till Terrence came around. And Terrence really was sort of a magnet that started pulling us all together. He's pulled us together today. And I think that the next phase beyond Terrence being a ma magnet for the psychedelic resurgence, uh, the next step is you. You are the next step in that link. You have started back in Eleusis uh, 2,500 years ago or more, and it's been a long stretch. And so how do you go about plugging yourself into the psychedelic resurgence? How do you help yourself find the others? And yeah, I've been doing a lot of thinking because I know Bruce has a number of these workshops planned. And uh, besides the fact that I'm a hermit and I don't like to leave our grandkids <laughs> very much, I, did, I figured out that the amount of time it takes to uh, prepare for one of these workshops and then travel and do it and recover the next day or so, in that time, I could Skype in to 75 to 100 little mini salons. And so what I'm going to do is anybody, uh, and this is ongoing for the rest of this year, anybody that has one of Ken's films, because I wanted to focus it, if you get a copy of the film, and, and by the way, I'm not getting a commission. I'm <laughs> doing this to find the others. Uh, if you have a copy of the film and you get some people over to your house, if you have four or more people, uh, after you see the film, then I'll Skype in and we'll just have a Q&A and talk and a little mini salon. And I think that the details of this are going to have to evolve and work out, but I would hope that eventually we could, you know, connect several of them and we could start finding the others that way just on a small scale. But if you have a reason to talk to a friend at work and say, hey, I got this cool movie and, and we're going to play it the other tomorrow night and this, this uh, old guy's going to Skype in and talk about it, uh, it's a reason why to ask somebody today. That's one of the, you know, it's, it, you need somehow a reason why to bring the subject up around the water cooler or whatever. And this might be a way to do it. So we're going to test this and try it. And as many, uh, uh, and I don't know quite how we're going to coordinate it. It'll uh, evolve. There'll probably be a website. I think we should record them and put them up there. And it's, it's essentially you're going to, what Bruce was saying, the Q&A that Terrence sparked, the, the real meat of those workshops came from the people themselves who were talking and ideas got passed around. So I'm going to see if maybe we can't spark something like that. And so that's uh, the project going forward here this year. So if you're interested in that, uh, you know, give me an email and we'll uh, give it a, a try. Now, last uh, summer when Bruce talked me into doing this, you know, it's, it's real easy to say, okay, yeah, let's just put something down and we'll send it to Esalen and on the outside chance they take it, then we're in. And then we'll figure out what we're going to do. So 
The sentence I got sucked into somehow, I don't think I wrote this. It says, uh, Lorenzo will take us from 2013 into the emerging era of cyber-enhanced humans immersed in a meme space stranger than we can suppose. (laughs) And and so I I worked on that this summer because we were getting ready. We thought we were going to do this on Orcas Island in the end of September, and uh, that didn't come together. And all of a sudden, uh, all the work I'd done uh, this summer, uh, I essentially threw it out and started over because two things happened. Uh, One, and I'll talk about that secondly, but it is the Occupy Wall Street movement. Uh, That is a very strange meme space. But the other thing that happened is on the technological front, because I'd been doing research and uh, talking to Bruce about the future and, you know, 2013 and us technologically cyber-enhanced humans. And then about two months ago, uh, my friend Claudia, Claudia Little, who you've heard uh, speak about cannabis in the podcast, uh, Claudia got a new cell phone and gave me her old one. Now, I've got a kind of a phone phobia. I don't have a phone myself, and I don't like talking on the phone, and I don't want to go into all those details. But So I never have had an iPhone, you know, and you know, I, I know what they are. I know everybody has one because uh, I walk around the street like you do, and I no longer see any eyeballs. I see heads down like that. All the time. And, and we were out walking uh, at the beach uh, a couple months ago, and there's a, a man walking down the, the beach, and his little boy is holding onto his shirt, looking up, talking to him, but his father is looking like that, walking along the ocean, you know. And I was at a park with, with one of our granddaughters, and a woman comes in, little girl, maybe three, trying to get her mother to engage with her, but her mother is just sitting on the bench with her iPhone. And so I've had a real problem you know, thinking about these until Claudia gave me this thing. Now, I've, I've never hooked up phone service, but this thing is fantastic. <laughs> I see why they're like that. And like the second day I had it, you know, I didn't have any apps on it or anything, and, and I just have it hooked up to Wi-Fi, so I took it over to the grandkids' house, and the little one, three and a half years old, not quite, she says, uh, oh, do you have such and such a puzzle? It's an app. And I said, no, I don't have that. And I said, I think I know how to do it. She said, give it to me. She goes to the app store. She says, put in your ID, here, your password here. And then, see, that's free, and so you can get it installed. She installed an app on my iPhone. Now, I used to be a programmer. I was a geek. I just spent a lot of time on interface design. These things are incredible. You know, And so I do understand uh, what's going on with them, that when I was growing up, the, the most uh, technologically advanced science fiction thought my friends and I had is we didn't think it was possible, but wouldn't it be cool to have one of those two-way Dick Tracy radios? Uh, if you've seen, there's not, not many people remember that, but <laughs> those of us that do, that was my wildest high-tech dream. And then I get this thing. So when I want when I'm... I just decided not to bother talking much about cybernetically enhanced humans because we are. I don't see how uh, you should want to wait for anything beyond 2013, 2012. These things have so much incredible power in in your hand that, you know, granted, they say next year the new UN uh, Wi-Fi uh, standard is for uh, the speed to be 500 times 3G. So, you know, things are going to get faster. They're going to get smaller. But how, 
how could you want more than what we have? You know, that you're in the middle of a conversation with somebody and they, they well, let me look that up. Let me go, you know, they are truly amazing devices. Now, what's the world going to be like when everyone in the world is connected to the Internet? And for me, I have a little indication of that because today there are more human beings connected to the Internet than were alive on the day I was born. So, you know, that's really something. And, of course, the world's a lot more crowded than on the day I was born, too. And I've been noticing that a little bit. But I think that, you know, there's good things and bad things about tech. And I've got a little sound bite I want to play that uh, there are two people that are going to talk in it. One is Terrence and the other is Aldous Huxley. Now, Aldous died in 1963, even before ARPANET. And, of course, Terrence died in 2000, which was five years before the iPhone. And yet, here's what they had to say about tech. Uh, this uh, sense of which so many people have, and which I think one sees in so many societies, this sense that man is being subjected to his own inventions, that he is now the victim of his own technology and the victim of his own applied science, instead of being in control of it. We and I, we are intellectuals trapped in a world of too much information. Innocence is gone for us. But technology is the real skin of our species. We have changed. We are no longer, as I said, bipedal monkeys. We are instead a kind of cybernetic coral reef of organic components and inorganic technological components. I was originally going to ask uh, for your comments about how you feel about this right now, but we're running a little behind. Uh, so instead, I'm just going to ask you to interiorize that uh, tonight a little bit and think about it. How do we find a balance between the constant like this and ignoring our kids and this incredible world of tech that we've, we've grown into? You know, the world is, is really different because of tech. And, you know, if you think about the fact that Terrence McKenna was really kind of a forward-looking guy, but he died before there was an iPhone, before there was Skype. And now the, the power, you know, here's the power, I think, that we have in our hands that, you know, it, we're just taking it for granted. But on the 17th of November, during the uh, 34,000-person march in Manhattan where they marched to the Brooklyn Bridge, there was a young man named Tim Poole. He's a homeless kid from Chicago who made it to New York. He was camped out in Zuccotti Park, but by the 17th, he had no home because they, they threw him all out the two days before. But he had a little, uh, well, he had a Galaxy S2 is what he had. And he had that phone hooked up to the net. He was, and I'd been watching Tim for months. He's, he was one of the live streamers. And he had a, an extra battery pack. On that day, he webcast live, live stream, for something like 17 or 18 hours, and I, I, I hung with him the whole time, that he walked in all these different marches and people would run and get him water. They'd hold his phone while he'd go to the bathroom. This, this guy, by the end of the night, now this is in Manhattan, which is a, a real uh, you know, center for the media, and yet he was the only one covering it. The other press never really made it, and by the end of the night, uh, the websites of Time Magazine, Al Jazeera, uh, who, BBC, and a couple others all were had embedded his, his, his feed, 
And by the time he got to the Brooklyn Bridge, just holding that little camera up like that and talking, he had over a quarter of a million people in his phone. Now, here is a homeless kid living on donations, and he scooped every major media outlet in Manhattan. Now, that's the kind of power we have in our hands right now. Uh, we've got power to, you know, granted, uh, I can't do anything like Ken did, but I can make little grandfather videos in the tech that you're talking about. We can do all kinds of things. And I think now is the age that we, we can start letting our creativity out, even if we're just kind of stumbling and crawling. We don't have to be masters at it. But by able to create some of these video things, I think it, at least with video and sound, is really important. And uh, we're all capable of doing it. We all have the tech now. So uh, I don't think we have to wait till 2013 to be cybernetically enhanced humans. I think right now we have got so much more tech than we can even use. How many of you have used 10% of the features on your word processor? <laughs> you know, there's so much stuff there. We've got all kinds of power at our fingertips, and now we're finding each other. So how do we use this to go ahead? So we get to the meme, the meme space, stranger than you can suppose. Uh, and I propose that the Occupy movement is that. Because uh, never before, I don't think, in human history, have there been so many people so pissed off and in, con in touch with one another. Uh, the live streaming is something that's really pulled a lot of these Occupy movements together. Uh, in fact, the other day, uh, a week or so ago, they occupied Congress. And uh, there were only about 2,000 people showed up, but there were like 40 live streams coming out of that. And Tim Poole's been traveling around the country teaching people how to do this. He's now got an Occupcopter. He's got his own little drone. You can get a drone at Radio Shack that has a high-def camera in it and is controlled by your iPhone for $289. You know, and just think of that. So when the police barricade him off, he's got his own drone, and he's, 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 a, he's a hacker, and he's hacked it so it can be handed off to 50 different people. And if it loses control, it flies home and lands itself. So, I mean, these kids are so far ahead of the establishment that, you know, the tech is in the hands of the people. And I think that is really important, uh, particularly with what's going on. And... I don't want to take much time on this right now to talk about it, but I really, uh, you know, I've taken a lot of uh, flack from some of my listeners because uh, they don't want to hear about the Occupy movement. Well, get used to it. You know, it's, this is going to be with us for the rest of, well, for the rest of my life, I don't think there's going to be a week that I don't hear something about Occupy. This is something that Bill Moyers and, uh, 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 what's his name with Pentagon Papers, uh, Ellsberg. Daniel Ellsberg and Bill Moyers both have stated that in their lifetime, there has never, never been anything even close to what's going on. This is something that, that is really worth paying attention to because it's going to change the world. It's not going to change politics. It's going to change the world. The culture of the planet is changing. And, you know, every, you know, I was, I watched in uh, New York. I watched in Madison. I watched in Salt Lake City. And they have these chat rooms next to the, the, uh, the live streams. And people from Tunisia and Egypt are, are in the chat rooms talking to the people in Salt Lake saying, hang in there. Uh, you know, it's just amazing. It's a global movement, and it's, it's the young people are the ones who are going to do it. 
But there's a lot of old people involved, too. A lot of the old 60s mentality is there. Uh, my friend Bill Radzinski in, in Manhattan, you know, he's got a bad hip. He's got a pacemaker. He went out and marched on the 17th for a few hours and then called me afterwards, you know. So what I'm trying to impress on people is that you don't have to go camp out somewhere. You don't have to even like what's going on. But I think it's really important to pay attention to what's going on because there's some very profound changes that are going to be taking place. It's not that people haven't been pissed off and complained about things before, but now it's, and, and it's probably been going on globally, maybe just about as much, but now with the Internet and with all of the technology, people realize they're not alone. And that's, I think that's the thing that Terrence did for all of us is that we realize we're not the just because we're the only one at, ho at Thanksgiving dinner that's a weirdo, we're not alone. There's a lot of other Thanksgiving dinners that have weirdos sitting at the table, too. And so I think that if you pay attention to it, you'll find a place to fit in because it's about transformation. And that's really what the psychedelic community is about, transformation of consciousness. And once any individual transforms their own consciousness, then they start doing things that changes things and maybe helps other people. You know, at, at the, uh, <laughs> when I was living in Dallas, before I found the Stark Club, I was an Irish Catholic Republican lawyer. I was a, I was a major activist in the Republican Party. I, I went to functions at H.L. Hunt's house where Bob Hope was the MC. You know, I was, <laughs> I was to the right of Attila the Hun. But, <laughs> but then I found uh, <laughs> the psychedelic community, and, and now I'm an anarchist. You know, so the... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I, I the quote probably the only thing will make the movie is I walked in the club an Irish Catholic Republican lawyer and I walked out still Irish <laughs> but <laughs> I won't go into that story right now but but you know uh, these these drugs can be dangerous if you're a Republican because you might not be one after you're done uh and, you know, a lot of people are, are talking about apocalypse and this whole 2012 mean in the apocalypse. But if you look up the word apocalypse, the definition is an unveiling, which means the revelation of something heretofore unknown. So even if you want to use a negative word like apocalypse for the change going on. And, you know, it's interesting that all of this is popping up in uh, around the 2012 meme particularly because if you've studied Carl Kalaman, you know, he, he had a different date. His date was October 2011 for the big event. Well, uh, he didn't miss it by much, if you want to say Occupy Wall Street, started in September 17th. So, you know, that is something that's changing. Now, the Occupy movement isn't just Occupy Wall Street. Uh, before Wall Street was occupied, there were demonstrations in Spain with 500,000 people there. Uh, in Italy, in Greece. I mean, this is a worldwide thing going on. And of course, you haven't missed the Arab Spring at all. And some of the people from the Arab Spring and from the Spanish uh, er, demonstrations flew to New York and spent the summer from August 2nd until September 17th planning all this. This is not just a casual accident. Uh, people like David Graeber have been going around for 10 or 11 years talking about this. The chants that you're hearing on the street, you heard them up at uh, the uh, World Trade uh, demonstrations in Seattle about 10 years ago. So this has been bubbling under the surface. And I really think that the tech is one of the things that changes it right now. The tech is bringing this together. And even, you know, people are saying, 
Well, what's going on? Nothing's happening with the Occupy. They don't have an agenda. They haven't put out demands or anything. But if you recall this past summer, all you heard about in the news was the budget deficit, you know, and they're fighting that and they weren't going to vote for it. Well, just uh, last week, without any discussion as a routine matter, they raised the deficit by budget uh, deficit by another $1.2 trillion. No strings attached. You know, Obama can do it when he wants. But what's all the talk now? Income inequality. At Davos, Switzerland, at, at where all the financial elite met this week, income inequality and the per- potential demise of capitalism were the two number one and two things on the agenda. So this is being paid attention to. Uh, Occupy Congress happened, and the next day the SOPA uh, Act was taken off the table and put back in its cage. So, uh, you know, yeah. But we've got to stay vigilant. You know, there's another one that they're talking about now. That one's gone now, too, I think. But uh, ACTA ACTA is the next one. So, you know, we're not going to be able to let our, our guard down. But ironically... After all of this 2012 meme that that some of us have been trying to uh, kind of say, hey, you know, that's too apocalyptic. It's end of the world. You know, it's like the Y2K revisited, and then there's going to be 2020 or whatever. Uh, well, something is happening in 2012. You know, besides the election <laughs> that's going on, there this whole under not underground, but this this rumbling just beneath the surface is starting to come to the surface. So something's up. And if you want to, uh, well, first of all, uh, and I'll try to remember to post this on the website, John Hoops wrote an article uh, for Psychology Today, and it's called The 13 Things You know, Need to Know About 2012 and the Mayan Calendar. And I'll try to make sure we can get that more public because it really puts things in perspective that, that uh, for the most part, everything that's popularly written about the 2012 and the Mayan calendar is all made up. It's just all coming out of uh, people wanting to sell books. There's, the scholarship is quite different from what you've been reading, so that's something you might want to look into. However, there's always the danger of a self-fulfilling prophecy, and so uh, let's make it a good prophecy if we're going to fulfill it. Now, there's something else going on in the sky besides uh, the calendar coming to the end of 2012 this year, which comes to the end of the year every year, I guess, doesn't it? And normally we just get a new calendar and replace it, which is what I'm going to do this year. But there is actually uh, an event taking place in the heavens that has both some astronomical significance and some historical significance, and it's called the Transit of Venus. How many of you are aware of the Transit of Venus? Oh, good. That's quite a few. That what People uh, don't talk about this much, but... You know, the transit of Venus is, is like, like an eclipse. If, if Venus was in a, it's bigger than the moon, so if it was closer to us, it would fully eclipse the sun when it went across it. But as a, as a result of it being so far away, it's just a little dot that goes across the sun. The transit of Venus across the sun is one of the most, uh, it's the longest spaced uh, re- returnable astronomical observation, that, that uh, one of them that we use. Uh, it's, it comes in cycles of two, and there's two cycles of two that take 243 years. And the last, this last cycle of two is going to complete uh, in this pair uh, June 6th of this year. The, the, it transited in 2004, and now it's transiting again in the middle of 2012. And that's a, the, the time frame for a transit of Venus. Nobody alive today will be alive for the next one because it's over 100 years from now. So that's the the astronomical event 
Here is the historical significance of that. The, during the first uh, transit pair that humans really became aware of from a scientific basis and, and uh, tracked and they were really looking into it, during that uh, eight-year period is when Magellan circumnavigated the globe and beyond all doubts laid to rest the flat earth. I mean, everybody from that moment on, the earth was round, it's a planet, it's, it's a, a globe in the air uh, floating through space. That was uh, solidified in human minds during that transit in the 1600s. During another transit, the uh, first uh, global cooperative scientific experiment took place to where uh, James Cook, it's when, you know, they say, well, he, he uh, discovered Australia and Hawaii and all. But his whole purpose was to take the scientists down to Australia for the transit of Venus because there were scientists all over the world on different continents from different countries cooperating for the first time in essentially almost real time on a single project. And it was a, a coming together of human minds for a single purpose. And that happened during that transit of Venus. During another transit of Venus is when the World Postal Service finally got inaugurated and put into place. So then anybody in the world could send a letter to someone else in the world. And so there has been some human significance during these eight-year periods. So what has happened from 2004 till now? Well, among other things, we have uh, wireless. So we have the iPhone. We have Facebook. We have Twitter. Uh, and we have these live videos. You know, I, I don't see how anything could be more of a coming together of humanity than, say, Skype. <laughs> you know, I can Skype my grandkids in Florida. I can Skype my friends in Australia. And the kids like Tim, Tim Poole can carry a little iPhone with a quarter of a million people from all over the world watching him. So we have really gone from seeing the world round to seeing it's a small little marble because we can get our arms around it in a single day with, with all of these, these technologies. So I think that, that right now with, with what's going on, if you just find your favorite role, maybe it's, it's to ignore the Occupy movement and tell everybody, be a naysayer and say, don't pay attention to it because that will get attention to it too. But, <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do, but I think that you should, should really kind of uh, – Pay attention to what's going on here. I think it's very much more important than you think. And as I see things evolving, what I think that we, we might want to reread and look into a little bit is an essay that Terence wrote. Uh, it's in several places. Uh, the copy I have is in Robert Forte's book, uh, Entheogens and the Nature of Religion, which has a, a number of great essays. But in it, Terence has one that he calls Psychedelic Society. And... There's a lot of things in there uh, that I find very, very fascinating. But in getting ready for today, that there were uh, one of my thoughts was I want to come up with one thing of Terrence's I'm not going to carry into 2013, and one thing I am going to carry. Uh, the thing I'm not going to carry is 2012, because one way or another, either it'll be the end of the world or it won't be. But <laughs> if, it, if it is, then I hope everybody comes up and says, I told you so, I told you so. But uh, I don't think they will. But... Uh, I think that the thing that he said in there, the one thing that has struck me the most and, and is worth more than anything he's given me, is just a little one-liner. He said, if you believe something, you're precluded from believing the opposite. And so you've limited the scope of your mind by one half. 
And since then, I have tried to shed all my beliefs and turn them into working hypotheses. Uh, I just put a new label on them, but it's a lot easier to change a working hypothesis than a belief, simply because uh, you're not married to the things in the same way. And, you know, he had some other things. He says that, you know, that psychedelic experience is about abandoning belief for experience. And so, you know, you can believe that uh, there's a bunch of hippie kids camping out in an Occupy uh, park, or you can go experience standing on a corner and having people come by honk and give you the peace sign and see how much support there is for this. There's, there's experiences to be held, uh, to had all across a whole wide range of things uh, in the society today. And he ended that, that essay saying, we need to be uh, exemplars that live as far into the future as possible. And, you know, that means something different for every one of us because we all have different concepts of the future. And, you know, if, if I thought about living as far into the future as possible, well, for me, that's tomorrow now. You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't try to I try to live intensely in the present. You know, the past is past. It's gone. It doesn't exist. The future doesn't exist. Here and now is all that we really have. It's just a lot of here and now strung together. Now, I think there are some paths to a psychedelic society that also blend in with the Occupy movement, and you can pick one. I'm just going to kind of list them here in case you hadn't heard of them. One of them is the Transition Town movement. Uh, I know Mary C. knows about it. But who else knows about the Transition Town? Oh, good. Whoa, look at that. Uh, for that. That's really impressive. I'm so happy because this started, I guess, in the 90s in England. Is that right? And uh, basically, it's people who are preparing for a post-carbon world or a really expensive gas world. And they're coming together in little communities, hopefully where they can walk to each other. And they're talking, exploring things about community gardens and a, a whole range. They've got books and workshops and things like that. But basically, it's people looking to the future saying, how can we live on this planet a little more sustainably? I mean, that's the bottom line. And if you think it, it isn't going to be an emergency, uh, the only economist that really clearly predicted the 2008 crash has predicted that gas, or the oil this year, will get to $225 a barrel, which is $7 a gallon in the U.S. So transition town really might be more important than we think, quicker. Uh, another thing is alternative currencies. There, there are like a thousand alternative currencies in the U.S. already, and people are starting them in different ways and, and forms, shapes, and you can do it all legally, and uh, that's something that you might want to look into because if you're using an alternative currency, uh, you're keeping as much money out of the uh, military-industrial prison complex as you can, and I think that's important. There are cul-de-sac communities uh, forming where people are finding uh, neighborhoods where houses being form, uh, foreclosed, and instead of having a commune, they'll, they'll buy up all the houses in a cul-de-sac and then get a community garden. and get So it's a little community, but it's not a commune community, but they do share a lot of things. That's another one. Uh, community gardens are getting very big. And then time banks. Uh, time banks have been around for a decade or more now, and they've been approved by the IRS as a non-taxable transaction because uh, you put time in. And I might go... Uh, babysit for somebody. Uh, she might go do some web work for somebody who might uh, 
clear the garden for somebody or cut, cut the lawn. And all of those hours go into the time bank, and then you can spend the hours for something else, like uh, you know, the elderly are getting driven to their uh, doctor's appointments, and, and in, in exchange they're doing babysitting or whatever. It, it actually kind of began over in Japan with the young people moving to the cities and getting a friend to take care of their parent back in the in their hometown and then they would wind up taking care of somebody in the city and so the time banks are something that are also are growing so there there's all kinds of opportunities that don't involve protesting and camping out and things like that but these are ways that we can start changing things and a, a psychedelic society isn't a society where drugs are legal and everybody does drugs all the time and stuff like that it's it's where people learn to think outside the box it's people are looking for experience and not they're not following uh, you know, gurus and stuff like that. So I think that's the direction that we're heading in, and and I uh, I'm very excited about it. For the first time in a, a really long time, I'm excited about where I'm going. Now, uh, let's see if I can find my notes here. There we go. Oh, okay, got lost. There's a transition LA uh, movement. I mean, you can plug in on the internet. Oh, is there trans? Oh, really? So there's little pockets of it? Yes, all over the city. Yeah. Yeah, I'm on the transition to San Fernando Valley. Uh, <coughs> Another one. In Na- Naomi? Yeah. You too? Uh, Mar Vista, Venice, Coastal, and Culver City. They all have their own little pockets. Wow. See? That, you know, it's, it's really growing a lot more than I thought. So, so catch, cook up with some of these people here if you live in this area and see if you can uh, do it. Mendocino as well. So uh, it is underway, and you know that that you don't have to say the word occupy; you can say the word transition, and it's a lot less <laughs> uh, tense. But I think one of the things that that us here today uh, should just pay attention to, because we've done it already, is we have self-selected ourselves. I mean, you're self-selected to be here. You, we're self-selected to expand our our experiences, our range of thinking, our consciousness, if you will. And when we expand our consciousness, it expands the consciousness of the whole species, the newosphere consciousness. So I think what we're doing is we have self-selected to bring the archaic consciousness back to our species, back to this planet. And uh, in the spirit of the Internet, in fact, I forgot to bring my copy. Wait, i got a copy here. I want to read a couple real short things. And this, I have a, a subsection I call the awakening of the newosphere, which is what I believe is actually taking place right now. And in 1998, uh, and there's, it's uh, error in the book that says 1988, but 1998, Ralph Abraham wrote a book called The Evolutionary Mind, in which he wrote, I believe that the World Wide Web is, as a matter of fact, the neogenesis of the newosphere. And then even earlier, right after World War II, Teilhard de Chardin was writing, and this is at a time, I think there were like five, really five mainframe computers on the planet, and there were no computer networks. This is a long time ago. He wrote, no one can deny that a network, a world network of economic and psychic affiliations is being woven at ever-increasing speed, which envelops and constantly penetrates more deeply within each of us. With every day that passes, it becomes a little more impossible for us to act or think otherwise than collectively. And that's, that's the key. I think the, the 
decade of the me's are over. And I think we have to think collectively if we're going to pull our species through this. And I close this chapter talking about the enlightenment of Homo cyber, which I've now changed to Homo divinus, but that's <laughs> another story. The day will come, and many of us now alive will see that day, when only historians will be talking about the Internet. As you know, the Internet is only a convenient way of describing the ever-growing and ever-interconnecting network of networks that carry our voice, video, and data communications. Without even noticing it, we will quit thinking about how our machines and ourselves are all interconnected, and instead, we will focus on the content of our communications. The day will also come when the expanded sense of awareness that shamans, psychonauts, and shamans and psychonauts seek in entheospace will be more widely experienced, for, period, for people will be using the portal of deep cyberspace, cyberdelic space, to launch their minds into the unlimited realm of entheospace where Gaian consciousness exists. As more and more minds constantly jump in and out of entheospace, the possibility arises for order to spring from this chaos of mind, and it is this new order I see as the awakening of the noosphere. It is anyone's guess as to what form this new order will take. It might become manifest in a kind of super-psychic awareness we all share, in essence, a truly global consciousness. Should ever such a moment occur, it would be fair to say that moment is also when the evolution of global consciousness actually begins. And uh, had I wrote that, written that today, I'd write it a little more up-to-date, but that was written in 99, actually. So uh, I think that we can see with the tech and the awareness and what's going on, people have been talking about this for decades and longer. Uh, like Terrence says, we're going down the birth canal right now. We're, we're really just getting started as, a, as a, a thoughtful species. And I think we need to dream. We don't dream enough, you know. What would life be like on this planet if we could dream the most wild, crazy dreams and then make it happen? And that's really what's going on with virtual reality and things like that. Uh, Terrence in the movie talked about turning ourselves inside out. And I want to play a short soundbite now that's actually uh, by a guy named Fraser Clark. Uh, how many of you know who Fraser was? Yeah, Fraser was really the cornerstone of the, of the underground, the countercultural community from the 60s on up until a few years ago when he died. He was uh, in, very instrumental in the rave scene in, in England. He was, uh, he was all over the world, including he led the Zippy Tour of the United States. And this is from a talk he gave at Stanford University uh, back in the early days of the rave movement. But what he does is he talks about uh, Terrence's idea of turning ourselves inside out. And to me, this is the wildest dream possible for a, a psychedelic future. Well, the computers play right into that. Here, here, okay, this is a perfect place to end. Uh, I think McKenna talked about this a couple of years ago, Terrence McKenna, and I used it last year as kind of what is the zippy vision of where we want to go to? What is the balance between technology and, or, and organic? Okay. Imagine a, a world in the future, a planet where there isn't one inch of concrete, it's covered in rainforest, completely 100% natural, a naked couple walking across a, across a clearing. Look pretty much like I was maybe a little bit hairier, but naked, yeah? They pause, she bends down, lifts the flower without breaking it and puts it in her mouth, thereby making an electronic connection. Menus drop down in their eyes. They plug into 
a sort of global computerized brain. They go into a virtual reality super city. They make their deals. They go to college. They do, you know, they have all the whatever they're doing. We have meetings in virtual reality, but in fact, we're all living as naked apes back in the jungle. In other words, the whole of technology has been inhaled into virtual reality. There's no more concrete, no more physical buildings anywhere, instead of being exhaled on the planet. Now, this, to me, this is a zippy vision, because I love nature, and I love the super city. The only thing I've got against the super city is that it's killing off the nature. So, if somehow we could put that into virtual reality, into cyberspace, then we've cracked it. So, you see the vision? Sometimes we call the zippy thing uh, Holocaust aversion therapy. I mean, people... Things seem so bad that people have almost given up trying to change the planet. But if we could get them excited about where we could be and all the amazing things that are possible that we get through the current turbulence and people could really get excited about the future we could have, then it would be like Holocaust aversion. We don't want Holocaust. We want to get through. Okay, I'll have to stop now. That's the time. Thanks very much. So that, that's uh, Frazier and actually Terence's uh, original idea. And uh, the only thing I don't like about it is I'd like to have shoes. I don't like to uh, go barefoot out in the forest. But uh, it's, it's an interesting vision. And uh, while, you know, it's not really practical, you know, 100% like what he says, but we can do so much more by not, uh, you know, spreading our carbon footprint everywhere. We can internalize a lot of these things. And virtual reality uh, is is one of the, the ways to do it. I think Skyping into workshops is a way to do it. I think there are a lot of things that we can do if we put our minds to it. Uh, I'm so excited to see how many people involved in the transition movement here. So for me, I have, you know, I've, I've been here for a few years. Uh, I think Franklin Roosevelt was in his third term when I was born. And so I had pretty much given up hope uh, this year, up, up until this year, until actually till the Occupy movement started. I thought, well, it's just going to be another, you know, more of the same. You know, if he, the pendulum will swing back and forth. I don't think so this time. I think things are going to really change. And I think that ultimately it's going to get pretty spooky, scary, but it will never get as spooky, scary as some of the wild psychedelic trips we've had. So our role is to be the keel. We're going to hold our species together in these rough waters because you just can't get weird enough for us. So we'll be fine. <laughs> That's all I have right now. Thank you. Uh, I would like to point out, too, that we talk about what can we do. You know, uh, we're sitting here, well, we don't have this, we don't have that. But I'd like to point out that in this room today, there are more people than we're in the room that signed the Declaration of Independence. And that made a difference in the world. So it's a matter of willpower of what you want to do. And whether we know it or not, <clears throat> we all are living our own personal myth. But we haven't really consciously created it. Now, I, I started a few years ago. I, I, I have a three-step process for what I call a running your life. And it's create your own myth, live your own myth, and then the hard one is believe your own myth. Now, I've, I've, I, you know, when I started the, the podcast, I, I put psychedelic salon in quotes and Googled it, and there were zero hits. Uh, now there are thousands of hits for psychedelic podfather, <laughs> which the, some of the younger generation have named me. So I have, uh, 
I have created this myth of psychedelic podfather. I've been living it, but I have to tell you, I, I, I can't quite believe it. You know that I am no different from you. You know, I I was at a conference just a decade ago, sitting in the room, saying, "Gosh, what am I going to do? I want to get involved." And I thought, "Well, I'll go to Vietnam and go up to the Central Highlands. I know there's mushroom cults. Nobody's ever. You know, I don't have any skill set to do that." And, and fortunately, my wife told me I was completely nuts. So, <laughs> so I'm doing this instead. So I, I haven't gotten to the believe part, but you. If you want to, you might want to give some serious thought that whether you know it or not, you're living your own myth. So create your own myth, live your own myth, and then really try like heck to believe it if you can. That, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I think if you do that, you'll you'll wind up a life with very few regrets. <clears throat> this is floating around the internet this past week, and maybe it's because I'm getting older. I I clicked through to read it, but uh, from hospice workers collected what are the top five deathbed regrets. Number five, I wish that I'd let myself be happier. Number four, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. Number three, I wish that I had the courage to express my feelings. Number two, I wish I didn't work so hard. But the number one deathbed regret that has been cataloged is, I wish I had the courage to live the, a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. You know, that's that's really tough. But you notice that all, of all those five, there wasn't anything about having a job or saving money or, you know, it, it's all about stuff and not even about joining a movement. It's about stuff that that you really do in your head. And that's what psychedelic thinking is about. That's really what we're we're doing. Uh, so all the regrets were focused on things within their power, you know, and the tricky one is, is that, that last one, uh, part of it, not the life others expect, because uh, remember that old Ricky Nelson song, you know, you can't please everybody, but you got to please yourself. Well, you know, how, you know, I had a, well, he was a business partner, he was a very complex relationship, but he was one of the most charismatic people I'd ever met, and he really lived his life his way. But one night in a, in a fit of honesty, he said, you know, everybody wants to be like me, but nobody wants to be around me. <laughs> and so there's, there's a delicate balance there. Uh, I'm going to play a soundbite here in just a minute. But first, I want to read a Gandhi quote that I hope you'll take to heart. He once said, what you do will be insignificant, but it is very important that you do it. And I want to play Terence's comment on that right now. Are we ready? What the universe is is a novelty-producing and conserving engine. And if we define novelty as density of connectedness, then guess what? The human neocortex becomes the center of the cosmic drama because the human neocortex is the most densely ramified and connected material object known to exist in the universe. So after a thousand years of human marginalization, suddenly through the injection of science, there is permission to believe that the cosmic drama really is about us, that we really do carry uh, the, the load in this play that this is a play about the career and preservation of novelty and complexity. And thus, we are central actors in that drama. And hence, if something were to happen to us and our enterprise, the universe would be vastly 
impoverished by that loss. Well, I agree with that, Terence, but uh, <laughs> let me ask you how. How do we do it? By magic. By magic. By magic. <laughs> So uh, now we know how to do it, but all serious, uh, all kidding aside, I, I think it is important to kind of consider what he says because I, I have this tendency to say, oh, you know, I've kind of lived my life and, you know, it's not that important. And, uh, you know, if he, what he says is right, and I have a hunch that maybe this enterprise of us, our species here on Earth, is much more important than we think, that all we know right now, we know there's billions, hundreds of billions of planets, but we haven't met anybody there yet. So whatever is going on, as Bruce said, there's all the computer systems on Earth can't even model this one neuron, and we've got a billion of them, so, or trillion, I guess. So, you know, there must be something important about these brains and bodies and the minds that are, are being carried around in them. So I think we should take ourselves kind of seriously, and I'd like to... Uh, close by reading two paragraphs out of the Genesis Generation, uh, my novel. And uh, those of you who have, have heard it or read it, it's uh, from the Wizards Council scene, and this is Apache delivering these words. <clears throat> A thousand years from now, humans will most likely still be walking the earth, as we have done for over a million years already. Some of those future humans will have genetic links to us. However, our names and our deeds will have long since faded from living memory. Yet, that does not mean that we will be forgotten. For those future humans, those future reincarnations, will look back to the age that is just now beginning, and they will remember you. They will remember you not by name, but as having been part of a new generation of humans. They will remember you as one of the people who helped to build a civilization that should last for yet another thousand years. And those people of the future will be alive because they had at least one ancestor, maybe you, who is a part of what their historians will call the Genesis generation. This generation isn't bounded by the age of its members. That isn't how it's defined. Members of the Genesis generation distinguish themselves by the way they think and the way they live. It is a state of mind, not a state of body. We are the people who are preparing the land for whatever comes next, a new foundation for a new civilization. And that is precisely what we are all about. You and I are the Genesis generation. Thank you.